We're, we're going to do a series uh, as a staff on the Gospel of John, and, and in December I actually preached on some of the texts. We kind of talked a little bit about discipleship, and we just preached from John chapter 1 about the calling of the disciples, and then during the Christmas season I actually preached from the prologue of John talking about the greatness of Christ. So that's why I'm moving on to chapter 2 this morning. Kent Hughes tells us that the Hebrew wedding celebration was the most significant event in the life of of the Jewish person, really the grand event of the actual uh, individual person's life, especially among the poor. The marriage ceremony usually took place late in the evening following a feast. So the feast was first, then the ceremony. And after the ceremony, the bride and groom were escorted to their home in a torch-like parade. Kind of romantic, huh? And it would, it would be complete with a canopy over their heads, and they took the longest possible route so that everyone in town could wish them the opportunity to have an amazing life together. So instead of a honeymoon, they would have open house for an entire week, which is totally unlike what we do in our culture. They were addressed as a king and a queen. Their word was like law. They were cr wore crowns, and they were dressed in special clothing during that week. And for people whose lives would contain much poverty and difficulty, this was the ultimate occasion to their lives because many would now plow through life never again to have a celebration equal to their wedding celebration you know certain cultures celebrate different things you know if you're in an african-american culture how many know funerals are a big thing i mean you don't have to have a lot of money but you save money for the funeral that is a big event in an african-american culture so various cultures celebrate different events differently and uh, I know that some of uh, ethnic people that are part of our uh, Canadian culture today, but if you go to their parts of the world, when they have a wedding ceremony, it doesn't last a day like we have. It lasts an entire week. It is a big, big deal. And so this is the picture you need to have in mind as Jesus now is coming to a little town called Cana. Now this is the only gospel that records the miracle that Jesus performs in Cana of Galilee, where Jesus turns water into wine. You know, I've never preached on this text in my entire life. So I'm kind of excited as I looked at it this week. Now this is a very significant story, because it is the very first miracle that Jesus performed. You know, how many know first things are important things? The beginning of something. And as, we can, as we're about to see, that this miracle did not just come about as a result of a need. It did, but it, there's more to it than that. As a matter of fact, uh, what we're going to realize in this miracle is that this is a revelation of Jesus and his glory. And as a result of his glory being revealed, his disciples find that their faith is strengthened and they're turned towards Jesus in a totally new way. Now, F.F. F. Bruce is a biblical scholar and he, and he points out something very interesting and unique about John's gospel. How many know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because they are totally different than the gospel of John. John is written in a totally different way. As a matter of fact, if you were to study the gospel of John, you'd, you'd discover a number of things. Number one, you would discover there are only seven miracles recorded in the gospel of John. That's not true of the other gospel. There's a whole bunch of miracles there. But John, when he talks about miracles in the gospel of John, he does not use the traditional or normal word. As a matter of fact, uh, several words are used in the New Testament to denote Jesus' mighty works. The word which usually or actually means mighty works, dunamis, 
is not found in this gospel. In fact, the word dunamis, power, of which dunamis is the plural, is totally absent from it. The New Testament miracles are not mere miracles. They were all signs of some underlying reality. And so John, when he's writing, he uses the word signs instead of miracles. But they're actually miracles. But they're all signs pointing to something. Now, it's also interesting that the way John's gospel breaks out is that there are seven signs or miracles and seven teachings, or six teachings. This miracle does not have any teaching. This is the only one. But it's, there's something about this particular sign that is very clear-cut. We're going to see it in a minute, what Jesus is trying to communicate to us. Now, I'm, I was thinking about this. Think about Moses. God used Moses to turn water into blood. You know, I don't know that. And when did Moses do that? Well, it was in a time when he was speaking to Pharaoh about releasing the people. It was a a judgment on the nation of Israel. But Jesus now, he's opening up a chapter in the new uh, kingdom that he's bringing. The kingdom of God is now coming among the people. And what does Jesus do? He turns water into wine. Now, what is significant about that? Well, let me just tell you that Wine is a symbol of joy. As a matter of fact, Psalm 104, we just read the psalm. It says, speaking of God, he makes grass grow for the cattle, plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the hearts of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. So when you're thinking of wine in the Old Testament, what you're thinking about is that this is a provision to, you know, to help people enjoy life. That's the idea behind it. Now, the concept is further reinforced when the prophet Isaiah is calling for the people to respond to God's gift of salvation. This gift is likened to wine, which, of course, enriches life. Here it's a call to come to God in order to be satisfied. Isn't it interesting? Isaiah 55 says it this way, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come by and eat. Come buy wine and mon- uh, milk without money and without cost. Now, how many know that most of us don't, you know, buy something with no money? <laughs> that doesn't usually work, right? But you can with God because God is commanding us. He's encouraging us to come to Him, and He's going to give us something that you and I don't have to pay for. Now, there is a cost to it, but not to us. God pays the cost, and He describes it as wine and milk. He's talking about something that will nourish our lives. Now, as we turn to our text, the miracle of water being turned into wine, we must take the context of the story into an account. Now, a lot of times we just read the story, but you know what happened just prior to this miracle? It says here uh, in John chapter 1. And you remember what was going on in John chapter 1. At the end, he was calling his disciples to him. And we get to the story of Nathaniel. And Nathaniel is praying under a fig tree, and Jesus said, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. Now, obviously Jesus wasn't present there physically, but what he's saying to him is that I heard your prayer because I'm not who you think. I am someone greater than who you think I am. And so Nathaniel makes this amazing declaration. It says here, he says, then you're the, you, you have to be the Messiah. See, Nathaniel declares, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And then Jesus says, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. Then he says this, you shall see greater things than that. 
And then he added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now that's the context of our story because in the very next verse it says, and on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. In other words, this is connected to what has just gone on. This is some of the greater things, Nathaniel, you will see. You're going to see something greater. And this is the first great thing he sees, is that Jesus now is going to turn water into wine. Now you say, well, I do that when I make wine. You know, we get the grapes, there's water in the grapes. Yeah, but you don't do it at this speed. And you don't do it at this quality. Right? I mean, this is going to happen, like right now. And we're going to see that. This is going to be a miracle. So what are some of the things that we can learn from Jesus performing these signs, and in particular, this sign of water into wine. And so I want to look, the first thing that signs do is authenticate who he is and his message. Now, I don't know if you recognize this when you're reading the Bible, but all the true prophets in the Old Testament had to, had to validate their message by giving a sign. And there's a lot of signs in the Bible. We don't always pick that up. You know, there's this happening and that happening. You know, like the miracles of Elijah and Elisha are validations that their ministry comes from God. Matter of fact, Moses had signs to Pharaoh that he was a messenger from God. He said, let my people go. Pharaoh says, who's God? You know, why should I let him go? Moses says, okay, here it comes. Sign number one, right? Boom, a plague, you know. And he continues doing that until finally, you know, Pharaoh at first goes, ah, it's just a cheap magician's trick. My guys can pull that stuff. And when you read through the book of Exodus, you see the Egyptian magicians copying the same thing that Moses is doing until finally they hit a plague where the magicians go, we can't pull this stuff anymore. This is none other but the finger of God. In other words, God is at work in this fair. You better start paying attention. Nobody can do what you're seeing happening now. This is not just cheap magician tricks. We can't pull this stuff anymore. This is a God thing. So Moses is validated by the signs that he is demonstrating that he truly is a prophet of God, and he's a true prophet of God. But now I'm going to say that. Keep this in mind. You can even have a message. You can even have signs and validation. But if the message is wrong, it's bad. Matter of fact, in Deuteronomy, we're warned, if a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you, announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder. See, you see how the Jewish people understood that one of the validations of a true prophet was he's going to have some signs. It says, and if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, so in other words, it's a true miracle, it's a true sign, but, it says and, but I'm going to just point this out to us, and he says, let us follow other gods, gods whom you have not known, and let us worship them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is doing what? He's testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. So God says, okay, I'm going to send my true prophets out. They're going to perform a sign. They're going to tell my message. But I want you to know that we have a deceiver. He can actually bring a false message and perform signs too. So sometimes that happens and that's a test. And actually Paul picks up on this in Thessalonians and says, you know what, in the last days there will be lying wonders and signs. It's not because they are not true miracles, but it says 
that these are a test for us to know whether we love the truth or not, to know whether we love God or not. So, you know, we have the same warning in the New Testament. Okay, now, it's interesting, and we, I wanted to give you just at least one example of a true prophet revealing a sign. So Isaiah comes to King Ahaz. I preached on this here just a few weeks back, and he says this, The Lord himself will give you a what? A sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and he will call him Emmanuel. Now, this had to do with the fact that King Ahaz was concerned about an alliance between Syria and Israel, and they were going to attack Judah in order to help, you know, they wanted to take over Judah so that they could fight against Assyria. And, you know, Isaiah's saying, don't worry about those guys. They're not that big of a deal. You know, how many times in our lives did God have to tell us, Stop sweating the small stuff. Stop sweating the big stuff. I mean, you know, this was a big thing, you know, two nations invading you. But he was basically saying, don't worry about this stuff. And here's the sign. And then he goes on to say this. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the, the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. So this is the sign that a child will be born and his name will be Emmanuel and before he knows right from wrong those kingdoms will have absolutely no power to do what they're, they're saying they're going to do to you. Now, how many recognize chapter 7 verse 14? Let me go back and read it. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Does anybody know where that verse is found? Aside from in Isaiah? It's found in the book of Matthew. Matthew picks up on this because not only is there a first fulfilling of this. See, we need to understand something. In the Old Testament, there is a fulfilling, but many times there is a greater fulfillment later on. And Isaiah quotes this in relationship to the birth of Jesus Christ. And he shall be called what? Emmanuel. You know what the word Emmanuel means? God with us. So not only was God with Ahaz in that moment way back in the 7th century, he's now God with us in the 1st century. But I want to give you the good news this morning. He's not only Emmanuel in the 1st century God with us. You know what Jesus says in Matthew 28 and verse 20? He says, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. And then he says verse 20. I love verse 20. See, a lot of people focus on verse 19, go make disciples. And that's what we need to be doing. But look what verse 20 says. Lo, I am with you. I'm going to help you do it. Until when? Until the end of the age. In other words, Emmanuel is still among us. And that's why today, if you have a trial, that's why today, if God is asking you to do something, Emmanuel is with us. And he will help us in our troubles. He will help us accomplish his will for our lives. He will help us make disciples. Jesus said, I will build a church. Boy, do you know how freeing that is when you're a Christian leader? And I have a role as leader in our church to know that it's not depending on me. And you're going, thank God it's not depending on you, Pastor. That we like you, but we're glad it's not depending on you. Because you're just a human being, right? We're depending on God himself. He is in our midst. Now, of all the signs, this particular sign of turning water into wine showed that this new thing that God was going to do was superior to the old thing. You know, remember Isaiah says, see, I'm going to do a new thing. I want to just 
share how exciting this is. This, this new wine that Jesus creates is superior to what they had experienced to this point. Look at John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Canaan, Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have a problem. There's a crisis. There's no more wine. This is the worst thing that could possibly happen. You know, this week-long celebration, and they cannot sustain what they've invited the people to experience. They've run out of wine. You know, I, I wonder sometimes, you know, is this a picture to say that there's an emptiness and an end to the old covenant? It just ran out. You know, trying to, you know, follow the law of God and human strength. How I many know that's a total dismal failure? It's a failure for all of us. It was a failure back then. She says, we have a crisis. Some have suggested that Mary must have had a role in this wedding because she knew what was going on behind the scenes. How many know that unless you're really involved in a situation, you just see what's happening in the front? She knew what was happening in the back, and she knew there was a crisis going on, and she knew who to turn to in the crisis. And how many know that Mary had a good idea that Jesus wasn't ordinary? How many know that she knew that Jesus had a supernatural... I mean, she had been a virgin when Christ was conceived in her, and she had seen the angels, and she had heard the wise men, and she had seen the shepherds, and God had spared them from the, you know, Herod's destruction of the children in Bethlehem. How many knew Mary knew that Jesus wasn't an ordinary child? How many know growing up having Jesus in your house was probably an experience? You know? You know, this guy's unbelievable. He never sins. How many know that's not normal? She knew that Jesus wasn't a normal person. So she said, Jesus, please do something about this. And then he responds. It's a very interesting response. He says, dear woman, why do you involve me? My time is not yet come. Now, when we read this, we go, oh. I mean, what kind of a response is that? You know, th there's only two times in John's gospel that we see Mary. And these are the two times. One, when the water gets changed into wine and at his crucifixion. And both times he calls her a woman. And most of us, you know, I, I was talking to someone from our church today, and he goes, man, when I call my wife woman, I get a negative response. Hey, woman. Now, I want to just say this, that the word that's used here is actually a word of endearment, okay? So it's not that he says mother, because he doesn't. And there's a reason why I think he doesn't use that terminology. And the reason being is simply this, that what Jesus is saying to her is that, that you cannot approach me based on family relationship. And F.F. And Bruce says it this way, uh, if she sought his help now, she must not seek it on the base of the mother-son relationship. It's not like, hey, son, can you do me this big favor? I have an in with you. No, she has to come the same way all of us have to come. As a matter of fact, Jesus is saying, I'm on my heavenly Father's business. In other words, what we need to understand about the life of Christ, this is going to really help us all understand something about Jesus. And he says it this way in John's Gospel. It's kind of an explanation of what he's doing. It says, Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. You know, I was trying to find that text and I've read it before where Jesus only says what the father wants him to say and he only does what the father wants him to do. 
In other words, Jesus was not doing his own thing. Well, that's a very interesting thought. In other words, he's not on his own agenda. Jesus is conforming his life to the will of the Father. By the way, is that something you and I need to learn from? Do you and I need to conform our lives and say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done? Isn't that the way Jesus taught us how to pray, that every day we would get up and say, Lord, you know, I have a lot of things on my plate today, but not what I think needs to be done. Your will be done. You know why we get so frustrated, so angry, so uh, irritated, so upset about life? It's because something happens in our day and we get frustrated. Come on now, now I'm preaching. Come on, is that true? We're a little bummed because the day is not working according to plan. Whose plan? Our plan. That's why we're upset. Who's not to say that this was God's plan? Now we came to church this morning, Len says, oh, there's water running in the, uh, in the nursery and not in the sink, <laughs> in the vents. Well, that's not where we're supposed to be running. You know, well, you go, oh, what's going on there? Well, God has a plan. And thankfully, some people in our church went over there and dealt with it. That was part of God's plan for that part of their morning. And you know, we get a flat tire and go, oh, bummer. Well, you know, part of God's plan. Don't always like parts of God's plan. How many could say, I'm always rejoicing when God's plan is being worked out? No, because sometimes God is teaching me patience and, you know, learning not to be irritable and frustrated, right? Come on now. Sure, he's working on our character. See, we think it's about our convenience, and God goes, no, it's not about your convenience, it's about your character. He's working on that in our lives. So Jesus' response alludes to the fact that he's working on a certain schedule, and it's created by his Father in heaven. And the glory which Jesus is now speaking of here, he says... My time has not yet come. There's a, and, then he, and then he says, um, I, I love his mother's response. You know, she's kind of unre, undeterred by this response. She goes on to say in the next verse, she says, verse 5, And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. <laughs> in other words, he's going to handle it. I don't know how he's going to do it. Just do what he says. And I wrote down in my note here, one thing we can learn from Mary is that obedience to God always brings blessing. You know, when I do what God tells me to do, it's all going to work out. If I will just continue to obey God and not try to do my own agenda, because, you know, a lot of times what we want, sometimes it is what God wants for us, but we get out of the timing of it. Anybody ever do that? We get ahead of God. And how many know helping God out is not helping God out? And how many know when we do that stuff, we get ourselves into deeper trouble? And a lot of times our sin is not so much, you know, sometimes sin is, is actually a legitimate thing expressed in a wrong time. Isn't that true? Sure. And so we just have to be patient. Oh, we don't want to hear that, Pastor. That's not what I want to hear this morning, you know. But I'm just saying to you, she just says, whatever he says, do it. And so Jesus now, we're going to learn now the second thing. Not only does it authenticate who he is in his message, but it also is an announcement that the kingdom of God has come. You know why I can say that? Because the king has arrived. He's on the scene. His presence is there. And listen, when Jesus is in the situation, something is going to happen. That's why every Sunday is exciting to me. Because I know the king is in the house. I have no idea what the king is going to do today. But I have some idea he's going to do something. And I can ask him, like Mary, I say, you know, we need a little wine here, Jesus. 
And Jesus could say, well, I'm not going to do that. And then we could say, whatever he decides to do is good with me, and you never know what he's going to do. And in this case, they actually get the wine. So look at verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Now, he could have turned wine, I mean, water to wine in a totally different way, but he decides to use these particular containers, and I believe it's significant that he uses these jars that are the jars for, for ceremonial cleansing. I think there's a huge significance to this. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water so they fill them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw it out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but the Jewish people were really hung up on purification. And most of us in this room don't realize how hung up they were. I'm going to give you a little sense. You know, I was doing, uh, I, I did a whole course on the Dead Sea Scrolls. I was listening to some lectures by a Jewish scholar. And he was explaining in detail <laughs> that even these sects, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes, you know why there was a distinct breaking in these groups? It was all over purification. Is this amazing? The Essenes were so hung up on stuff, you know, they would not even want to go to the bathroom on the Sabbath. So they ate differently and fasted so they wouldn't have to defecate on the Sabbath. You're going, this is extreme. I'm telling you, you have, the pouring of a liquid into another jar could be contaminated. And they had debates over with the lower vessel and the higher vessels, which one were contaminated, which one weren't. And if they had contaminated material, were both jars now contaminated or just the one? And literally, their group split over purification. Now, you have to understand that background a little bit so then you can understand why Jesus has this discussion with the people of his time. Look what he says in Mark chapter 7. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law had come from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus, and they saw that some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, they were unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give a hands, a what? A ceremonial washing. Now, you and I think about washing our hands as a hygienic sort of thing, good health thing, right? Dr. Marlborough, isn't that right? That's how we wash our hands. The hygienic thing. No, no, not in the Jewish culture. This had nothing to do with it. This had to do with ceremony. We have to be pure, okay? Ceremonially pure. That's why they washed their hands. And it says, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they did not eat unless they washed. And they observed many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. Now, how many are getting a sense? This is all ceremonial stuff. Now, if you go to Israel today, how many are going to eat kosher food? And one of the things that happens on our trip is they don't mix meat with milk, dairy product. So the way you eat there is so different. It's kosher. Some of it are going, don't know what that's like, but some of you have come with me. You know what I'm talking about. You want, you know, at nighttime we want a little bit of milk in our coffee. Can't give you milk at night because, you see, they're serving meat at that time. Not kosher. Not clean. They're hung up on this stuff, folks. Let me tell you. So now Jesus says this. You have a fine way, he says, of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Again, Jesus called to the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean but going into him. 
Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. And after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked about this parable. I'm skipping some verses here just to give you the, the semblance of this. Are you so dull, he said? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, this is interesting. This is a little parenthetical thought. Jesus declared all foods clean. That's why we don't have to observe dietary laws from the book of Leviticus. Because Jesus said, you just bless it, all food is clean. Because it's not food that defiles you. So what does defile us, Jesus? He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean or defiled. From within, out of a man's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and makes a man unclean. In other words, what he's saying is, what really defiles us is not what comes from outside of us. It's what's within us, our own heart. Wow. Now, how many are beginning to realize, well, that's a big problem, Pastor. What can we do about an unclean heart? I'm so glad you asked that question. Because now we're getting to the heart of the whole gospel. We're getting to the heart of what Jesus is doing here. We're getting to the heart of what makes Christianity so dynamic. This is what gets me so excited. What Jesus is pointing out to the Jewish people is that the ceremonial does not transform a person's life. It takes a spiritual power greater than that. As humans, what do we tend to focus on? The externals. We judge people by external things. House they live, the car they drive, the certificate they have, the job they do, the clothes they wear, how they look, their appearance, their achievements. All external stuff. That's all external. What does God judge? The heart. Let me tell you how scary this really is. I was reading this morning the parable of the ten virgins. Remember that parable? Five wise, five foolish. All virgins. They come to the wedding feast. Remember this? They all fell asleep. The ones that were wise were considered wise in the story because what had they done? They had brought a little extra oil. The foolish were not that wise. They didn't bring any extra. So when they all were asleep, this, this really says something about the church. It just says that we're all pretty dopey. We all fall asleep. We're not as watchful as we think we're going to be. We're not as good as what we hope to be. We all fall asleep. And then the wise ones have enough oil to rekindle their lamps so the bridegroom comes and takes them. See, most of the times when you hear people preach on this parable, they're focusing on the fact that they're all virgins wrong focus. What we need to be focusing on is two words, foolish and wise. Now can I go back to the Old Testament and say this? How do you know when a person is wise? What defines wisdom in the Old Testament? What is the ultimate essence of what wisdom is? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You see, when you and I in internally have a fear of God, I'm not talking about we're frightened of God, but we have this unbelievable respect towards God we have wisdom that comes into our lives and we say, how can I commit this great sin against God? See, that's wisdom because we have reverence and respect that who is watching our lives and we're just not going to do anything. The foolish person does not have that forethought. 
They're not planning for the future. They're living in the moment, but they're not really fearing God. They look like they're Christians. These ten virgins were all virgins. They were all, in a sense, part of what people would think would be the church today. But when Jesus showed up, what happened? The five went in. The five went to get the oil. When they came back to the door and they knocked on the door, what did Jesus say to them? I never knew you. That is a very profound statement. That, that shakes me up a little bit. That says to me that our Christianity has to be more than an external thing. It says to me that it has to be internal. It has to go inside. That's what changes us. It has to come from within. You know, Jesus here is talking about conversion. Think about it. He's going to change water into wine. Isn't that an amazing miracle? But I think the greater miracle is that he can change a sinner's heart into a believer's heart, that he can regenerate us, he can transform us. Paul talks about it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? He's a new creation. He's no longer water. He's wine. He's been changed. He's been transformed. The old has gone. The new has come. Peter describes it this way. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of our Lord, our, Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Folks, can I just encourage us right now that you and I at this moment, if we have Christ in our life, we have everything we need for this life. And we have everything we need to be godly. That is amazing to me. How, he says, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. That's what we're talking about. A new nature. God's nature living within us, helping us to escape the corruption that are in our world. And how does this corruption operate? By evil desires. And haven't I just pointed out what Jesus said? It was the evil desires inside of the heart of a person that corrupts them. It's evil desires inside of us that corrupts us. So we need to have a power greater than the evil desires. And I'm suggesting to you that power is the power of God in our lives. When Jesus turned the water into wine, what he was declaring was that he was bringing what was greater than what had been before. Jesus is about to transform the very element of our world for our benefit. I love what Kent Hughes says. He says, They have no wine goes beyond the lack of refreshment at the Canaanite wedding. It defines the human experience without Christ. Life without Christ is life without wine. In Scripture, as I've already said, wine is a symbol of joy. Now, Oh, you know, in other words, a life without Christ is a life without joy. Notice the response of the master of ceremonies, verse 10 and 9 and 10. And the master of the banquet tasted the wine that had been, I mean, water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, Hey, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have seen the best. You've saved the best till now. Now, I want to just make a little statement because one of the good things about preaching is you've got to explain things to people because sometimes people take texts and abuse them. 
This text has probably been abused more for the overindulgence of alcohol than any other text in the Bible. And I'll tell you why. People say, see, they had wine at the wedding. And even the bridegroom, you know, or the one person said, you know, people get drunk because they overdo it. Therefore, it must be okay because the Bible says it, right? Now, I want to explain something to us. Sometimes the Bible says things because that's the way life is, not the way life should be. Now, let me point out something to all of you people that think, well, it's no big thing getting drunk. This verse does not support drunkenness. How do you know that, Pastor? Because there's another verse that directly says, don't get drunk. And i got to pay attention to the imperative here, which says, do not get drunk on wine. How many? That's pretty clear. Don't get drunk. And that doesn't mean you can't get drunk on beer then, because it doesn't, you know, it's just wine. I mean, that's how people think today. No, 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 no. This is dealing with alcohol, folks. Don't get inebriated, is he saying. He says, don't get drunk. Why? Because it leads to debauchery. In other words, don't get under the influence of alcohol because it leads to debauchery. Well, what is debauchery? Most of us don't know what it even means. We just read these verses. Let me tell you what debauchery means. It means to be seduced and led astray from moral virtue. How many know that when you're drunk, your inhibitions drop? And when people are drunk, they do things in their drunken condition they'd never do in a sober condition. True or false? It's true. Now, what does it say in this verse? It gives you the first part of the verse, but it also goes on to explain the last half, and I think they're tied together. Rather, he says, instead, what? Be filled with the Spirit. Now, I think I know why he says that. If you're not to be influenced under an intoxicating substance, you need to be influenced by God's presence, His Spirit, which, by the way, is symbolized as the new wine. You know, the Holy Spirit, one of the types of the Holy Spirit is a new wine. And go back to what wine represents in the Scripture is gladness of heart. Well, let me show you how it all ties together. Galatians, but the fruit or the result of the Spirit is love. What's the next word? Joy. You know, why do people drink? Well, they party to live. They drink and party to live, and eventually they drink and party to die because it doesn't eventually satisfy the cry of their soul. But the Spirit of God does. You know, when you and I are full of the Holy Spirit, you'll never have a higher level of joy than being full of the Spirit. And you know what's interesting? It's the very opposite of being drunk. Because one of the fruit of the Spirit is what? Self-control. Isn't that amazing? He's showing you a contrast between the two things. Well, I think being full of the Spirit is the opposite of being full of alcohol, which leads to debauchery. I think when you're full of the Spirit, it leads to joy and peace and kindness and patience and long-suffering and self-control. That's beautiful. Let me move on to the last thing, and I'll close here real quick. Just make word of this. Good news is my point isn't long. All right? Hang in there. Jesus, in performing this miracle, is revealing his glory, and it stimulates our faith. You know what the disciples had said earlier in John? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. How does Jesus reveal His glory? 
he just, you know, you know, ultimately his glory is that he's going to be crucified and exalted, right? That's his ultimate expression of glory. But all through his ministry, he's revealing his glory. Every miracle is a revelation of the glory of God because what it's doing is focusing all of our attention back onto who Christ is. Walking on water, speaking to the storms, you know, healing the demon-possessed, healing the sick. Isn't that amazing? All of these manifestations, Christ being transfigured on the mountain, all expressions of his glory. And ultimately, one day after being crucified, they come and they're in an upper room. And what does Jesus do? He walks through the walls and he's alive. And then on that Mount of Olives, Jesus is ascending into heaven. What are they witnessing? They're witnessing the glory of God. Let me close with this. Jesus works in our lives. He does miracles. And it creates a greater degree of authenticity for us to know who he is. And then we see his presence at work. We know he's the king. He's working at revealing his glory to us so that it will stimulate faith in our lives. Because look at verse 11. It says, This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Canaan and Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. You know, this particular miracle, water into wine, was really so that they could experience an enriched life. And I'm going to just say this. I really believe that we can have the most enriched life possible. I don't have to go out and drink alcohol to be enriched. I can be full of the Spirit. And it can bring such deep satisfaction in my life. Oh, may we drink at this fountain. Let me just close with these verses. Come to me, Jesus says, all who are weary and burdened. I've had moments like that where I've been weary. I've had moments where I've been burdened. I've had moments where anxiety has tugged at my soul. I've had it even this week. I've had moments. I'm being uh, uh, totally candid with you. But I know one who can take away all of this stuff and bring rest to my soul. Listen, Jesus says, take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and what? Humble in heart. I have been so struck with that expression, humble in heart. The nature of God is that he is humble in heart. And when you and I are humble in heart, and you know what it means to really be humble in heart? It means that I can just exhale and rest in the knowledge that I don't have to produce. I can trust that God will take care of things. He says, humble in heart, and you will find what for your soul? Rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let us stand. How many here today, you know, had a great, great, beautiful miracle. It was a sign pointing to Jesus. Maybe you need that sign today to know that Jesus Christ will satisfy your soul unlike anything else will. All the other things that we think will satisfy. You know, our culture keeps advertising every day and tell you, you need this toothpaste to be satisfied. You need this car to be satisfied. You need this trip to Las Vegas to be satisfied. You need this trip to the Cayman Islands to be satisfied. You need this trip to Hawaii to be satisfied. Come on now. Are you hearing me? 
Are we being told that all the time? This is what will bring rest to your soul. And I'm saying, no, it won't. It won't. It may satisfy you momentarily. But I'm telling you today, there is something greater. Greater that will satisfy. With every head bowed today. I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to give a, a long altar call here, but just to say this. How many here say, you know, Pastor, I can identify what you're saying. Maybe you've even been challenged this week. I've been challenged this week. We can allow the pressures of life, the anxieties of life. You know, these are the things that choke out the Word of God. You know that? Choke out our trust in God. Holy Spirit today is reminding us, come to me. You're weary, I'll give you rest. Learn of me. Yield to me. Surrender to me. I believe He's calling us to that. He's calling us to know Christ. He's calling us to come and drink of that new wine, not the wine the world produces that creates anxiety later on and distress and debt and broken relationships. He's calling you to come and drink from the new wine, the new wine that brings ultimate satisfaction and joy. And you can say this morning, boy, am I ever thirsty for that, Pastor. I need to come to Jesus today. I got my hand up. Maybe that's you today. You're going to join me saying, I'm coming today, Pastor. I want to drink from that new wine that Jesus produces. It's not just external. It's not ceremonial. It's life, and it brings satisfaction to my soul. And that's you today. Just raise your hand. I'm going to pray with you today. Come, let's drink from this wine today. Let's be so intoxicated with God's presence that we can live in a state of peace that literally defines our soul rather than the circumstances of, you know, broken relationships or disappointments or challenges that we feel we cannot meet. Amen? Let's drink deeply of this wine today. Lord, we come to you. And Lord, as we are in your presence right now, Emmanuel, God, with us. You are in us. And Lord, we run around scurrying sometimes, like just like the children in this world. And we forget to be like the birds who recognize that their Father will take care of them and provide for them. Lord, let not anxiety overwhelm us. Lord, let not external, the external things of this world draw us. But Lord, may we find our solace, our hope, and our rest in you and in you alone. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.